One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. The rest of you, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Uh, it's in the New Testament. After the four Gospels, you got Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We're in chapter 3 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's like four or five of them, maybe six on the back table. One of those is now yours, so go grab it. You can grab it now or grab it on your way out. Either way, that is our gift to you, okay? All right, like I said earlier, if you were here uh, before we got started, this summer at Holy Cross, we're taking an extended look at what it looks like to live out the Christian life, what it is, in other words, to walk after Jesus. And last week, we looked at how everything has to begin, because everything in the Christian life doesn't begin with doing so much as with being, uh, that growth in the Christian life is ultimately bound up in abiding in Jesus, not trying harder, or engaging in self-help. This week we begin to work that out with the first of two sermons on repentance. Now, repentance is a really churchy word, right? It normally is associated with crazy dudes with a sign, and after the word repent comes, the end is near. Uh, So let me just flesh out what repentance really means is turning away from one thing towards another, right? Turning away from something. That is what it means to repent. It's an exclusive commitment. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that does imply a commitment, an exclusive one. An exclusive one that necessarily will mean that you won't follow other things. So if you have your place in the book of Colossians, if you wouldn't mind standing in honor of God's Word, that's our habit here. As we come to hear the Word preached, I'll be reading verses in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we've come into this place with a bunch of different stories. But right now, right now, we need you to call us up into yours. Whether we have trusted in Christ long time ago, earlier this week, or never before, we ask that you would come. You would speak to us, soften our hearts, open our ears, bring Christ and his cross to the fore, and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. For Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we ask that you would do all this for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. 
So I have, most of you know this, right? I have four young kids at home, ages nine to five. You can do the math. We won't do all the gasping and all that stuff. But so um, at my house, it is not strange to hear the phrase, when I grow up, I want to be, you know, and you fill in the blank. That, that's rather normal. It's a fun little game, right? You'll hear things like uh, policeman or teacher, fireman, ballerina, uh, football player, or some combination of the two. I want to be a ballerina who's also a scientist and is a firefighter. You know, it's like, good luck with that. Um, That's a great imaginative exercise for kids, right? Because there's so many possibilities. Children are like these little bundles of potential. However, as we get older, that game ceases to be cute, right? I mean, it's culturally expected that as we grow into adulthood, we will end up making a choice. Now, the reality is that We can tend to make several of those, but the point is the same. When you choose to do one thing, you also, by necessity, choose not to do lots of other things. Right? The same is true in marriage. It's an exclusive commitment. When you choose for one person, ultimately you're choosing against every other person, every other potentiality. And this passage this morning deals with the same thing, but does so with following Jesus. Turning towards Jesus, walking after him, will mean, by necessity, walking away from other things. And so, uh, as is very common here in this church, we're going to look at this in three ways this morning. Most of you know there's an outline in your bulletin. If that's helpful to you to follow along, great. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the, what, the whys of repentance, the what's of repentance, and the how's of repentance. Okay? The whys, the what's, and the how's. You good? All right. Let's get started with the whys. Look down at verses 1 to 4. These four verses really lay the foundation of everything that's going to come after. So I want to make sure that we, get, we, we understand them really quick. Because in these things that he talks about here, there are three different locations, or maybe um, temporal locations, for, for what he's talking about. There, he, he says, first and foremost, that you have been raised, that's something that happened in the past, that you are to continually be seeking what is above, that's something that goes on in the present, and that you will be revealed in glory with him that's something that goes on in the future. So when we talk about the whys of repentance, we need to see first that the whys are grounded in the past. Okay? They're grounded in something that happened in the past. They're active in the present, and they are leaning into a future. Okay? Let me flesh that out. Now, when he talks about being raised with Christ, that's obviously in the past, right? Now, most of us hear the word Christ, and we think either a curse or we think Jesus. And, you know, the latter's good. We want to think Jesus. But the reality is that Christ isn't like Jesus' last name. Like, you got Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and they had Jesus Christ. Like, Christ is a title, not a name. Okay? It's a title. Uh, and if you were a first century uh, Jew or first century someone connected with Judaism, as Paul's hearers were, when, when you heard the word Christ, you thought, um, first and foremost, about a particular person. The one that God would promise, the one that God promised would rescue us. Okay? Look, the Bible is very clear on the fact that every person on this planet is in the same boat. We are all, we are all in need of rescue. And the reason for that is because we have turned away from God, that we have become independent of Him. We were created for a dependent relationship on Him, to be turned towards Him, to be relying on Him for things. But we, we came to believe that, that that wasn't good enough for us. We needed better, and so we turned away from Him. We want to seek our own way, our own definition of right and wrong, our own definition of what would make us uh, flourish and, and happy, and, and so we betrayed him. It's not just breaking a rule. It's about breaking the heart of a person. We betrayed him, and we've been betraying him consistently ever since. And the Bible says that betrayal brought a twofold problem. It brought 
it brought guilt, um, and it, like, we're guilty of betraying God, but we're also stuck in our independence of him. You see, most of us think that if there is a problem, if, if humanity has a problem, that that problem is moral. First and foremost, though, it's not moral, it's, it's positional. You know, not betraying God looks like full dependence on him, returning to him, but we're stuck in our own way. You can be as moral as you want independently, it still doesn't answer the problem. Still with me? Okay, so God promised to rescue us, though. Purely out of grace, which grace is another churchy word that just means an unmerited favor, getting something you didn't deserve. Okay, so purely out of grace, he determined to restore us to himself. And that promise, as it developed throughout the Old Testament, um, throughout the Bible, came to orbit around a figure, a figure that was called the Messiah. Messiah in Greek is Christ. Okay, the Christ. This person would come and rescue us from our sin, our betrayal, our independence. And friends, this is the person that Jesus claimed to be. Jesus didn't claim to be a teacher or a guru. He claimed to be a rescuer. A rescuer. And the New Testament tells us that that Jesus wasn't stuck like us in independence. He lived a perfectly dependent life, a, a perfect life without sin, the life that we couldn't. And it tells us that he died to bear our guilt. Now look, I know that, that may be offensive to some of us. That's the nature of forgiveness, right? When you've been betrayed, or better, when you betray someone else. There's two options, right? Either you can bear the weight of your betrayal to someone else, we call that justice, or the person that you've betrayed can bear it. They can bear that, and we call it forgiveness. Jesus, being fully God in his death, bore the weight, the penalty of our betrayal for us. In other words, in Jesus, God was bearing our own betrayal of him. And so when Paul says, you have died and risen with Christ, what he means is that you have been restored to a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus. Something definitive that happened in the past. It's not something that continually on goes. It's something definitive. The present day thing, the thing that's going on in the present, is the seeking and thinking on things above. Now, when he says seek things above, when he says think on things above instead of things on the earth, like our, our first, like the first response we normally have is that Paul, Paul's thinking something like, you know, uh, heaven good, earth bad, right? It's not really it. Like he, he says this in a lot of different places, different ways, but similar ways that make us think of what Paul means is he's talking about... Um, when he says the things on the earth, what he's meaning is that's associated with life before Jesus. Those things that are associated with what it was like for us living before Jesus. And then things in heaven are like the things that are associated with life after our encounter with Christ. Okay? Now we'll flesh that out in a minute when we talk about the what's. But then he talks about the future, right? When Christ is revealed, that is, your life. When Christ, your life is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory. Now, what he's doing in this moment, is he's laying out a vision for the future. There is something coming where everything will be different. He's saying, in light of that, begin to live into that vision. It's kind of like, you, you know, you, uh, it's springtime, right? So it's kind of like if you plant a flower bed, and you've, you've got this flower bed planted, and you've got seeds in the ground, and you've got the mulch over it, and you tell people, please don't walk on my flower bed. And they're like, what flower bed? This is just a brown spot with mulch. There are no flowers here. And yet you want people to not walk in it. Why? Because you're living in light of something that is coming. Because in just a little while, there are going to be flowers up in there. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be pretty. And so you want to live in light of what is coming. 
That is what Paul means. Live in light of what is coming. Glory. And that leads us to the part we didn't talk about, the condition. Look down at verse 1. He says this. If you've been raised with Christ. Now, this is super important. So, so if, you, if you checked out, check back in. Okay. When I read the passage, so many of us already were going, here it comes. Like, this is, this, is, this is what I thought I would get when I get into church. It's all going to be about cleaning yourself up, raging against that immorality. Here we go. Like, ah, you're going to be pounding the pulpit, sweating. It's going to be awful, right? Now, look, you might be able to make that conclusion, but for this verse. Because this verse changes the entire discussion. It's a conditional sentence, right? In other words, everything that comes after hinges on the two letters in the word at the very beginning. I-F. I say this a lot, but we need to keep hearing it. Friends, Christianity begins and ends with Jesus. It begins and ends with Jesus. We look at religions and rightly think that what we need to do is to get certain things together. We need to get our lives together in a certain way so that we can be right before God or, or in harmony with the universe or with our inner self or whatever it, you know, you, you've picked up at Barnes & Noble these days. This is the message of religion. That is true of religion. It's just not true of Christianity. You cannot understand what Paul means with the rest of this passage without this verse. Because Christianity teaches that you and I don't need a little help. We don't need a few pointers. We don't need a kind of a new morality to kind of make things right. We don't need a reformation. We need a rescuer. Christianity isn't about a morality. Christianity is about a Messiah. Christianity is about rules. It's about a rescuer. That is what, is it about, what it's about. And so Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, definitively, at a point in time, if that has happened, then here is what you do. It is not, go and do these things so that Jesus will come and rescue you. Go and put away all of this list of bad stuff, and then God will like you and love you. It is because God has done these things, because God has rescued you in Jesus, therefore go. And look, this, this idea that we do things and, and God will like us. Some of us here this morning believe this and we think this is why God likes us. That this is, this is what makes, makes you a Christian or makes you spiritual or makes you good. Others of us believe this truth that God will like us if we do good things. And that is why we think there is no chance in Hades that, that God will like us. Because of how bad our life is, how much of a train wreck we are. Friends, it's not that at all. It is all about the if. You can't make yourself good enough because God isn't looking for good. He's looking for dependent. You can't get that independently. You need a rescuer. And the scriptures tell us that rescuer can only be found in Jesus. So that's the why of repentance. The why is because of joining yourself to Jesus by faith, and so being raised with him, now we come to the what's. Okay? What exactly are we to turn away from because we are walking with Jesus? First, let's look at putting to death. Look down at verses 5 to 7. He starts with this great word that we translate put to death that literally means kill. Like it, it literally means kill it. Like slaughter the thing. Okay. Now, what is important about this is the way that he uses it. He doesn't say... In the future, go and do this. 
Or he doesn't say like continually throughout your life do this. He says definitively get it done. Kill it. Put it to death. It is a definitive act. But what's more, the word is poignant, isn't it? Is it not because of the imagery? I mean, he could have just said stop it. Just stop it. Stop doing this stuff. But he doesn't say stop it. It's more serious than stop it. He says, kill it. Put it to death. If he had said stop it, it wouldn't have gotten the point across. This is a serious business. It deserves a serious response. And that brings us to the list. All right, now, what we have in here is what scholars will tell you are called like vice lists. Um, Paul's got a bunch of these. He's got one in Romans. He's got one in 1 Thessalonians. He's got one in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he's got one in Galatians. Like he does this in multiple places in his different letters that he's written that are all part of our Bible. Um, and he does this, and none of them are exactly identical. Like there's overlap between them, but they're not identical. All right? Which, which is important for us to understand. That what the points, Paul's point here is that, isn't that he's trying to be comprehensive. In other words, this list isn't everything we have to turn from. It's kind of like your representative sample. Okay? Um, However, just because it's comprehensive doesn't mean it's negotiable, right? As if because he didn't list everything that therefore we can bargain, we're like, well, I'm not so big on that one, but I like the one in Romans. Can we go with this, this list in Romans and not in this one? No, no, it's not negotiable, okay? So let's get to these, these things. The first is sexual immorality, okay? The, the word in, in the original is, is porneia. It's the word that we get pornography from. Okay, Now, here's the thing. When we talk about sexual immorality, many of us in this room associate the Bible with Victorian culture, right? For some reason, we think the Bible was written in like 17th century England. I don't know why that is, but we all tend to think that. And that, therefore, because the Bible was written in such a puritanical culture, it can't possibly understand the progressiveness of our current situation. That somehow people now face so many different uh, trials and temptations that the Bible just can't apply. And so we have to kind of update it. Well, frankly, that's just not historically accurate, okay? When Paul uses this word porneia, in the Roman world as a whole, in the Greek world, this this word was used often. However, uh, because of the culture, it was often not seen as necessarily a vice until it was taken to excess. We'll get to exactly what defined excess for them here in a second, okay? In other words, this was a commonly understood idea. But the culture in which Paul was writing it to wouldn't have seen it in exactly the same way. Because in the biblical context, every time it's used in the biblical context, it talks about, when it says sexual immorality, it means any kind of sexual practice outside of the covenant relationship of marriage between man and a woman. Okay? That's what it means. Now, here's the culture that he was writing it to. In Roman society... Okay, in Colossae was a Roman city, right? In, in Roman society, if you wanted to get your crops to grow, or you wanted your wife, or if you were the wife, if you wanted to be able to have a baby, what you would do is you would go up to the local temple of Artemis or some other f- fertility god, and you would participate in worship. And worship in that world was to visit a temple prostitute, either a man or a woman. It was very common. So sexuality is kind of out there, whatever, you got to go do it. It's religious, right? And not just that. If you were a Roman man, okay, and you were a landowner, uh, 
and sometimes even if you were just a, a fairly well-to-do merchant, um, you, had, you had a wife, and that wife was for um, bearing you children. And then you would have a mistress. She was your plaything. Okay? And then you had a concubine, and she was the eye candy at the party. Your wife stayed home, and she bore you children. That's what she does. Your mistress was for you in the bedroom. And the concubine was so everyone would look well upon you when you went to parties. Right? That is the world that Paul is writing to here. That was not excess. That was normal. That was like half the dudes in this room would have been doing that. And Paul is saying, no, no, you don't understand. Anything outside of the, any sexual practice outside of the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman, out of bounds. Put it to death. Put it to death. Now, of course, we can look at that and go, oh, that's so terrible. We do the same thing. We do the same thing, right? I, mean, I, I don't even have to mention the, the, the practice of sexuality outside of marriage. But that, that's plenty common. But, but what about the fact that, uh, you know, some of you guys in this room, look, let me just be straight up. Some of you guys in this room, you've got your nice wife to look nice when you go out in public and to bury your kids, and you practice your sexuality with an endless string of images on the computer. You got your mistress too. And don't give me the, well, that's not a real person. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Paul says, put this stuff to death. If you've been raised with Christ, he says, that has to die. Now, the next word is impurity. Now, that, that word impurity, that, that can deal with sexual immorality as well. That can deal with sexual stuff. But it also includes various forms of evil. It's kind of a catch-all. Right? It's one of the reasons why Paul's lists aren't comprehensive. He, he includes words that can mean lots of different things. And so this is kind of a, a catch-all. And then he gives the next two words, passions and evil desires. Now, uh, passions and evil desires you could take sexually as well, but you don't have to. They, they have to do with an inordinate drive for stuff. Right? Uh, that, that stuff could be sexual in nature. It could also be material in nature. nature. It could be food. It could be substances. What it, what it means is... A desire that controls you. A desire that you order your life around. Today we would call it an addiction. Paul says put it to death. Now the problem is if we stopped here, we would think this sounds like normal, normal church stuff, right? Paul's railing on sex and substances. So this is like normal. We expect that. But the final one breaks that whole thing down. Because it's covetousness. Now, covetousness. Again, churchy word. Covetousness means... Two things. One is wanting things that other people have because they have them. Okay? We got that. But it also means wanting more than you ought to have. Hmm. Wanting more than you ought to have. Friends, the entire basis of Western civilization is born upon that very phrase. Wanting more than you ought to have. Our entire way of life is built on that. We have an entire industry that is there to tell you in every impossible media outlet that you ought to have these things so you can be happy like these happy people who are drinking stuff and having a good time. And if you only drank the same stuff and wore the same clothes and drove the same car, you'd be happy like them. You ought to have that. Paul calls it covetousness. And then he says this is idolatry. Idolatry. That means that when we want what other people have, or when we want more than we should have, 
We will serve it religiously until we have it. And Paul says these aren't fit for Christians because this is a betrayal of God. He says later, literally his anger, his wrath is coming because of this. And because it is what we used to do. He says it's what you used to walk in. Now, listen to me real close. Let's not start lying. Some of us in this room are still walking in this stuff, right? Others of us, others of us maybe we just stopped walking in it. Others of us, you know, we're, we're, we, we try and pretend that was never true of me. Yes, it was. Not a person born on this planet who isn't broken. It's true of me. It's true of you. Let's not try and lie about it. We're to put them to death, though. If you were in Christ, he says, put them to death. But then there's what he tells us to put off. Look down at verses 8 to 9. That, that word put off. It's the same kind of thing that he's talking about kill it. In other words, it's the same definitive act, but it's a, it's a, a metaphor that has to do with clothing. It's like taking off a coat. Um, it, it, and what he associates with this are more subtle issues, right? I mean, the stuff from the last list, those are like front page sins. Those are front page things. It's like obvious to all. These are the things that are kind of like buried, page three, last column, over by the crease that you might, might not catch if you're not looking. Like, that's what these are. And he starts off with anger, rage, and malice. Now listen, not all anger is bad. God gets angry. It's not called bad when God gets angry. But often, our anger comes from our desire for vengeance, right? Our anger has to do with our desire to go get something back from someone else. Um, most of us get, get the most angry um, as a, what, what I like to call a second-tier emotion, right? We get angry because before that we felt uh, weak or humiliated uh, or vulnerable. And we get angry so that we can feel strong and not have to feel weak anymore, okay? Because we want something back. Rage is the same way. Malice is literally wishing harm to another person. And Paul says the ears are to be put off. They are to be taken off like, a, like an old pair of jeans. The reason is because, friends, the Christian has been forgiven. That doesn't mean we don't get angry. That's crazy. Most of you know this. Like it, it's the constant, it, it's the one constant between home and where you come to worship. I will get angry, either at my children or at someone else as they're cutting me off in traffic. Like it's going to happen. Like that's not what he's necessarily talking about. God, like I said, God gets angry. It's not sin. What it does mean, though, is that we aren't driven by our anger, and we don't use it as a context to harm. We are, if, if you have been raised with Christ, you are a follower of a God who did not take vengeance on us, but instead bore it himself. And then comes the issue of the tongue, right? Because he says to put off slander, abusive speech, and lying. Listen, some of us in this room have wicked tongues. Wicked, wicked tongues. What I mean by that is that our words are used to tear people down. Our spouses, our co-workers, children, maybe even our church leaders. I mean, sure, maybe it's not how we normally think. Like, we don't, like, you know, t- totally undo someone in public. But what we do what we do instead is we couch it in language, right? Some of you are Christians, and so you're like, yeah, I would never do that in public. Yeah, instead what you do is you couch it in language of needing someone to pray for you. Please pray for me because this person drives me crazy. I am so angry. Listen to what they did. You need to pray for me because they are just awful. And Can you pray for this? Because, God, they drive me nuts. 
And all you're doing is you're taking that person that you're talking to and you're giving them an image of another person in which they are about this tall. And they are awful, horrible people. And you, of course, are the wounded innocent. You are tearing them down with your words. All you are doing is venting your rage. And Paul is saying that that practice needs to be in the past. Let me get really specific and practical for a second. I know a lot of you are like, finally, Rick is never very... But let me... Here it comes. Jesus says, Jesus, in Matthew 18, says, if you have a problem with someone else, you have two choices. You ready? Real simple. Two choices. You go talk to them, or you keep your mouth shut. Those are your choices. In following Christ, those are your choices. Okay? We are to be a people of the truth who use our words to see others flourish and not to see them destroyed. The last thing we're supposed to put off comes in verse 11. And this is one that you don't often see within these lists, but I think it's very poignant that it's here because Paul is talking about things that divide us, right? And he's talking about four real barriers because our world organizes itself around these things. You've got the racial barrier, you've got the kind of the moral slash religious barrier, you've got the cultural barrier, and then the economic one, all right? But the church, Christians, are to be a people organized not around those things, but around Jesus, which isn't to say that it cancels those things, it just marginalizes them. Here's, here's what I mean. Paul says here there's no Greek or Jew, okay? In the Jewish worldview of which Paul is a part, there's only two kinds of people. There's the Jews, and there's everybody else. And he's saying, not anymore. Now, now, in other words, what he's saying is we aren't first and foremost racially identified. Not first and foremost. Get back to that in a second. Then he says neither circumcision or uncircumcision. Actually, uncircumcision is a bit of a gloss on what that word is, and I won't say what that is, but it's a little bit of a gloss. And what, what he means is like morally identified. In the Jewish world, that was the foremost boundary marker of what made you right with God. Okay? There's this religious practice. These moral practices are no longer what identifies you. Barbarian or Scythian. Um, in the Roman world, barbarians and Scythians were both very strange cultures. Barbarians were those outside of the empire. That was kind of a catch-all. If you, lived, if you are of Germanic descent, guess what? Barbarian. Like, that's what they thought of you. Crazy dude. Lives up. Might eat weird things. Might eat people. We're not sure. Like, that's, that's the barbarians. And then the Scythians were those of a weird culture within the Roman Empire. In other words these cultural distinctives no longer organize us, and then slaver free. There's no fundamental, no, no more fundamental economic distinction in the, in the ancient world than being a slave or being a free man. Paul says, there's, neither, there's no longer any of these things. Christ is all in all. Now, what Paul doesn't mean is that in Jesus all these things dissolve into nothingness. As if... Um, I actually heard someone say this uh, at, at uh, Julian's um, prayer vigil on Monday that somehow that when we go be with Jesus, there's not going to be any distinctions. Like, there, there's no longer going to be race. Right? Just we're all going to be non... No. That is not what he means here. Okay? It doesn't. Listen. God made me a white kid from the country and then later from the burbs. That is who I am. I, 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 that's it. Right? I got, I got nothing. I can't pretend to be anything other than that. God doesn't erase that any more than he erases those who come to Jesus and are, and are black, Hispanic, Asian, what, what have you. He doesn't erase those. But I am not a white Christian. I'm a Christian. I am someone in Jesus who is also white. Fundamental to my identity is not my race. It is 
my place in Jesus. That is what he is talking about. And the same is true of, of our economics. Is look, when, when you come to Christ, it's not as if suddenly everyone gets a six-figure salary. Woohoo! I wish. That'd be great. Or, or that suddenly everyone's like, no, the six-figure dude needs to come down to three figures like me. Like, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying you're not identified fundamentally by that anymore. You are now a Christian. That is part of the old way of being separate. And when I say old way of being separate, I mean I mean, actually separate. Not just like, well, in my mind, I believe that all people are... No, no, no. I mean, separate. Like, not worshiping together in the same place. Separate. And we, look, I know it's not comfortable. And we're all going through... Like, Wait a minute, Rick, but, but what about what I want to do? And da, 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 da. Paul says, <laughs> no. Those things no longer divide us. We are to be... We are to give up our preferences, our pride, and our prerogatives for others. I know it's not comfortable. I know it's hard. But Paul says for Christians, it's necessary. not optional. All right, but how do we do that, right? I mean, we struggle in this place. How do we repent? How do we turn from our misuse of our sexuality, from our classism, from our racism, from our abusive words? We've got to remember the story, man. Look down at verses 9 and 10. The end of verse 9, Paul says to put off the old man with his practices and instead put on the new one being renewed in knowledge and the image of the creator. Remember what I said at the beginning. Humanity betrayed God. We betrayed God at the beginning and became by nature stuck in our independence, seeking our own way. That is the old man. His name is Adam. The new man, the new one, is Jesus. So Paul says to put off the old man and to put on Jesus. Okay? Great. That answers everything. Moving on. Hallelujah. All right. It's this. It's an act of faith. Listen, repentance is ultimately about turning from what you've been chasing and moving towards Jesus. Turning from this stuff and turning around and moving towards Jesus. You cannot will your way to a clean life. I've tried. It don't work. All it ends up doing is making you hide. Some of y'all are doing that right now. Some of you all keep your distance from people in this place and outside because you are hiding. You are trying your best to make it seem like you have done, you have cleaned it up, and you haven't. You're just lying. You may have fooled us, but God's not fooled. You probably haven't even fooled us, to be honest. Probably just letting you go. Like, all right, when he's ready, he'll come back. You know, that kind of thing. Paul says instead that the beginning is to come to Jesus to be renewed. When he says that you put on the new man, being renewed in the image, that, that word renewed is in the past. In other words, it's not something you do, it's something that's being done to you. God is working in us. And then we move out by faith that God is working in us and we put things to death. Right? God, we, we come by faith to Jesus, say, Jesus, I can't solve this, I need you to help me. And then you move out by faith, you put the thing to death going, he's going to help me. And he's working in me. But it all begins by appropriating the grace of God in Jesus. Now, let me get specific. I mentioned this earlier. I'm going to mention it again because it needs to be mentioned about as often as we can. If you are here this morning and you are stuck using and discarding people through pornography. And listen, when I say that word, some of us get things in our heads like, that is not an out there problem. That is an in here problem. And that is not a male problem. In society today, that is, that is all of us. 
That is an all-of-us problem. And I tell you, you can try and just stop doing that. You may even succeed. I, I doubt it, but you might succeed in stopping. But that doesn't mean repentance has necessarily happened. Instead, you need to begin by asking the question, why? Why do I do this? Why do I use it? Because it's not as simple as you might think. You're like, well, I know why. But no, it's really not. Like, maybe it's for control, right? It's to control relationships. Like, people are scary, man. What do they, they might reject you. Those pictures don't. Maybe it's about control. Maybe it's an escape from reality. Or maybe it's to make you feel wanted. Listen to me. Those pictures can never answer those questions for you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can. The gospel can. You are wanted by the God of the universe who sent his son to rescue you. You can't be any more wanted than that. You are secure in the grace of God. You do not have to escape. And God has promised never to leave you. You don't have to control fake relationships. By appropriating the grace of God in Jesus, real repentance can happen. And real change is possible. But it can't simply be done by white-knuckling it. Real change comes through the if, the being risen with Christ. Okay, lastly, though, I want to talk about living into the story. See, this is the part that's often missed when we talk about repentance. And in fact, every time the church talks about sin, this is utterly missed. Because when you and I talk about the idea of sin, that three-letter word that's really a four-letter word to us, like we, we think of sin as arbitrary rules, right? Just arbitrary rules. And so when Christianity or Christians talk about what the Bible says about sexuality or, or homosexuality or, or care for the poor or lying or cheating, the question is always, well, why those rules and not these? Why those and not these? I, I don't like those rules. I like these rules. So why can't God be happy with my rules? And if we just say, well, because God said so, that doesn't exactly cut it, right? Our society is a little too suspicious. You and I are a little too suspicious for that. We're like... Yeah, it doesn't really cut it for me. I, what, am, what, am we, what are we supposed to do? Well, the reality is that that's not exactly a complete picture anyway. Because, listen, Christian morality is not a system of merit. Right? You don't do good to get good things. It's not a cosmic star chart. Right? And you put your little stars up and then you get your goodies after you get a few. Like, that's not what Christian morality is. The Bible gives, gives a morality not to, so that you can earn something from it, but as a vision for the life that you and I were made for. It's about a vision for our flourishing. See, we aren't called to tell the truth because lying is bad, but because we were made for the truth. And when we tell lies, we dehumanize ourselves and the one that we're ta- telling them to. We aren't called to forsake sexuality outside of marriage between a man and a woman because God hates sex. Lord, no, he created it. But because we were designed to flourish when we give our bodies to another while also giving our very lives to them exclusively and according to promises. We aren't called to stay faithful to our spouse because God does not understand how people change. I mean, I know I sang that love song about how you're going to be my one and only, but Dang, you changed. What am I supposed to do? I'm not happy anymore. God God knows that. I think he doesn't know that people change. He kind of made you. Like, 
He knows. He designed us. He knows that we change. In fact, he calls us to stay faithful because he knows we change. We, are, we flourish as we are faithful and true to our promises, even when things are hard. We seek to stay pursuing one another and love each other daily. That is why Paul lays out a vision for the future in verse 4. That's why he says, like, look, when, when Christ is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory. He's saying, he's saying look, we will become what we were made to be. And so in the here and now, Paul says, if you are in Christ, if you are dead to sin, if you are risen in him, then be who you are. Not who you were. Go be who you are. Turn from what you were and be who you are. Now let me conclude with this. Because the temptation here is to see this as optional. Right? Well, Rick, saved by grace in Jesus. Like, don't don't be putting your laws on me now. Like, saved by grace in Jesus. Listen to me. (laughs) You cannot ride two horses with one rear. You got me? If Jesus is this way, you cannot tell me you have your faith in Him, following Him, when you are walking this way. You do not. You are fooling yourself and, everyone, and thinking you're fooling everyone else. Doctrine does not save you. Listen to me. We're, a lot of us in this room, we're Presbyterian Reformed. We love this stuff. It will not save you. Your good ideas about how you're saved will not save you. Jesus does. You turn and you follow him. Does that mean every once in a while you're not going to be like, uh, uh, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you are walking this way consistently and habitually and you say, I'm following Jesus, this is by faith, but uh, you are lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. Cannot ride two horses with one rear, okay? To follow Christ by its very nature to say yes to Jesus, say no to everything else. It is by nature an exclusive commitment. And so friends, the only thing I can say this week as we close this on repentance is to follow him. Stuff will not help you. No, it's not easy. Listen, I, listen, you don't know my story. Some of you do. I know it's not easy. But it is, it is what will bring us life. Would you pray with me? Father, we are a pilgrim people. That, that means that Christians are those who, who are called to follow you, to walk after you. And we do that imperfectly, And no one in this room can claim that they are of a perfect walk with Jesus. Whether we've been walking with you for for, uh, 10 seconds or for, I don't know, 50 years. We cannot even begin to claim that we we have a perfect walk with you, Lord. And so by grace, we ask that you would continually deepen our faith, deepen our repentance. Or for those of us who are just stuck... We're stuck this morning. We're stuck chasing stuff, and we we don't know what to do with that. Especially not now. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to examine the if. Because for some of us, that means we're, we're really not following you, Jesus. We have not been raised with you. 
We've got some great ideas, some good doctrine. We just don't have life in us. And so we need you to come and give us life and give us faith and repentance. For others of us, Lord, uh, some of us in this room, we've we never heard anything like this before. Lord, I pray that you would just work all of, in all of us the grace of, of faith. We need it. We need you to give it to us. And then help us to walk it out. Help us, Lord, by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be who we are in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.